the day I received the letter that I've been granted an Evans scholarship and I would be going to Purdue tuition free. One of my close friends who lived across the hall, like I ripped the door open. I'm like, Tim, dude, full tuition scholarship to Purdue. And he, he gives me a, a big high five and a hug. And he's like, congratulations, man. I just got a free ride to Stanford. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you couldn't even like give me 30 seconds on this one, you turd. Hello and welcome, everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome, everyone. For our show today, we're speaking with Tom Lehman, who's a friend and the CEO of Surplus City, which is a leading supplier of HVAC equipment and replacement parts at great prices. Tom, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We were just chatting before we started re- recording, and I paused you because uh, I was very excited to just jump into the recording because there was so much stuff we were already talking about. So I'd like to maybe just start kind of where we always start in these conversations to know a little bit about you. What you know, Where did Tom Lehman come from? Where are you born? You know, Whenever you're comfortable starting, if it was on day one or year one or year five, tell us about yourself and, and you know, how you grew up. Yeah, it all started on a bright sunny day in late March. And yeah, I'm a, I'm originally an upstate New York kid. My uh, parents, my mother especially, was a little younger. She was 18, I think, when I was uh, when I was born, and that creates a childhood that has some really cool features to it, but also some challenges that I think I took with me much later in life. The first uh, being your parents are so close in age to you that there's a, there's a great opportunity to be friends and children. Does that make sense? That tends to mean that when you're growing up and playing baseball, for example, or whatever, my mom could go out and have a catch with me at any point, which is always cool. Uh, or would be the parent that was the most active at the playground, chasing us around and like really, truly being engaged in the moment, which is, which is awesome. Uh, the bad part is my parents were still figuring out who they were as adults and a married couple when I was very young. And so you can, you see some of that friction in a marriage that that's healthy, I think, but um, but about two people growing up. And my parents have a fantastic, like I think, a model marriage even back then, but especially today, because they learn the skills of talking through everything from the super important, you know, what, how are we going to retire, to the what's for lunch. You know, everything is approached with this same talk it out strategy, you know, look at it from every angle, peel the, d- dissect the problem into all its <laughs> moving parts. And it, I've gotten married, but introducing my wife to my family, she's kind of like, wow, you're, uh, your family's a little intense about everything. I'm like, well, I guess <laughs> you just don't notice it, right? Because you, you're, it's second nature to you, but it, it definitely creates a, a problem solving kind of talk it out mindset when that's, that's what you see. So, but uh, upstate New York was a a great place to be a child. I lived uh, within, uh, I could see the Catskill Mountains 
and the Hudson River was basically the backyard. So Beautiful. it was uh, one of the typical 80s childhoods where your uh, parents are saying, okay, we'll see you for supper. Go away. <laughs> uh, I have a sister who is a fantastic person. She's a chemical engineer. I like to say she's 10 times smarter than I am, and I don't think I'm that dull. She's incredibly <laughs> gifted. She lives in Houston with her uh, her family and her son. And and uh, yeah, that was that was kind of the general, the gist of the childhood was, was growing up around that way. Pretty small family, just the four of us. Uh, my parents had a lot of siblings, or my mother had a lot of siblings, but they were all scattered. And my father was originally from Indiana, so he had no family whatsoever within, you know, four states. So it was it was a lot of us. But um, one of the neat things about my childhood, my parents had a lot of uh, four or five sets of really close friends. And so my, me being the oldest of all of the children that that group of people ended up having, uh, I hear this. I didn't know this at the time, naturally, but I was the test baby. So. When my mom needed a break, <laughs> they dropped me off with one of those four sets so they could practice screwing me up. <laughs> so it was uh, an exciting kind of group to be around. And it's you played cards all the time and there were always people over and it was a it was a fun place to grow up. That's awesome. Well, you probably got a whole range of experiences, too. Yeah. All sorts of different parenting techniques. Some good, some bad, probably. <laughs> I'm sure all of them left an impression uh, at the at the tender ages when I didn't even recognize they were making an impression. But what's what's still fun is you know 40 years later, still being close to a lot of those folks. You know, we still call them aunt and uncle just because that's what you did. And it again, my wife getting introduced to all of this. She's from Indiana, and I'm from New York, and that's that's a difference in how you view family and how you view relationships and things like that. But she's like, I'm like, yeah, this is my aunt and uncle. And she's like, you got a lot of aunts and uncles. I'm like, yeah, they're not real aunts and uncles. They're, they're family, but they're not family. Like, you have that, right? No, I have just real aunts and uncles. I'm like, oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> just the brothers and sisters of my parents. Yeah, just the people I'm, you know, literally related to. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. That's not how this works. <laughs> so that's great. So, so, you know, I don't know. Is that kind of zero to five years old? Or at some point you started going to school in New York and then... But then ultimately, we were talking about... Made it to boarding school in Indiana. Yeah. And when, uh, so when did to, boarding school start? Or zero to 12 going, was sorry. all in New York. So my father was working for IBM. Uh, and then in the 90s, IBM had their major, I don't know, consolidation. And um, <laughs> my father and I share a lot of similarities in our personalities. And I've managed to maybe curb some of the worst parts of our personality a little easier than he has. But we laugh about that. But he he was part of the IBM kind of consolidation. And at that point, we he stuck it out. This point in my life, that that 12 to 14 point uh, was, I can tell you at 40, was very foundational of what I believe how a husband and a father, and I know this is probably less popular right now, but how a man should treat his family if he's going to assume the role of provider, right? Not saying that every man must be a provider, but if they are, if they're going to assume that role, the front row seat I had to excellence during those two years was was truly foundational. Oh, after the IBM deal, uh, he had some friends that came forward and said, "Well, if you want to do, if you need work, you know, let us know." So he took every odd job and every difficult job you can, working wow. machine presses in factories and construction and everything. After I think six months of that, my family decided to relocate to Indiana. So my father moved out early to be able to get a job and to start getting some getting settled, I suppose. And we moved out, I think, a month or two later, something like that. And then during that period of time, 
he was, we were living in um, normal, like a townhouse-y kind of apartment complex, but it wasn't for the well-to-do. It wasn't for like the people who couldn't pay rent, but it, there was, I don't know, it was, it was, you know, you know what I'm getting at. But during this period of time, he worked at GE first shift, would come home and eat, take a shower, go to a cookie factory and pack cookies at second shift, come home and sleep for four or five hours and then go do it all again. Wow. And he did that for six months. What an incredible kind of example of work ethic and desire to provide for or a family. And, and so what was your, how old were you at this point? You were tw- uh, 12, 12 and 12? 13. Yeah. That's a yeah. pretty formative time as a kid too. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish you, know, if I had a time machine, I would go back and tell them, thank you. Then <laughs> I managed to say it later, but when you're 12, you don't understand why all the other fathers in this area are home all the time. So they can play with their kids nonstop all day long. And my father was never home, right? And when he was home, the one day a week he didn't work, I think was Sunday. And you didn't talk to him. You didn't touch him. You didn't mess with him. He didn't go outside with you. Like you just left him alone because that was his one 24-hour period in the week that was his. But at 12, you can't rationalize that to a 12-year-old. But that same period of time, that exact same period of time, my parents had a very adult conversation with me about money. And they said, if you ever want to do anything, go to the movies, buy an ice cream cone, doesn't matter. You're going to need to pay for it yourself because we're, we are very tight with money and there is no extra money for fun. Full stop. Okay. So what was amazing about that though, was it wasn't just a go get your own good luck. It was a go get your own and we're here to help. So the first thing that happened was we got a paper route. There was, I don't know, a boatload of apartments in that complex. So we had, I had a paper route and my sister and I shared it. And my mom walked the entire apartment complex with us every single day so that we were safe and we delivered the newspapers. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And this is uh, dating it here, but this was back when the newspaper company would send you um, in the mail, a coupon that you needed to go then give the subscriber who would give you money. And then you would have to turn the money back into the newspaper agency it's baffling that it all worked uh, <laughs> when you think about the advances in 30 years, but the, that was how it was done. And so not only did we have a job, but we also had to learn how to handle money and we had to learn how to ask for money for people who owed it to a group of people who generally didn't have it. Right. That's that's hard. I was not a soup, probably as perceptive as I would have liked to be 12 year old. But I feel like both those two experiences, especially in tandem, were Maybe even for me, like thick-headed twelve-year-old me would have been formative. Can you can you share a little bit about you know living in the moment, how what you were kind of thinking, feeling, learning from that experience, and then as you've had time over the last many years to kind of like process that, what additional you've taken from those experiences as that those kind of memories and experiences have seasoned and you've kind of matured as an individual. I think um, without trying to put a rose-colored glass on it, I think you learn that. People are tough, you know, and what I'm very blessed for today is that I'm not in that same situation, right? And my mother comes from a a family, I don't want to say it's cyclical poverty, but let's say it's regular bad choices, if that makes sense. And to see the strength and the courage that both, especially my mother, but my father too, had to sacrifice nonstop forever to make sure that the sins of the past didn't get repeated. I think every, every family needs a, not just a nuclear family, but every like large, you know, family tree 
needs a branch of that kind of firmness, right? That that just has that that it factor that says we're definitely going to do it differently and we have the courage and the willpower to make it so. And yep. that's pretty powerful. So you kind of learn that 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 it's I don't know, it's really not that bad is one of the things you kind of learn too. I have a superpower and that is the ability to kind of be ignorant. Like <laughs> so I think at 12 even even though all these experiences are happening and they're powerful I think my parents worked very hard to insulate us from knowing those things so that we, from the appearances and kind of what we were doing, felt like we had a normal childhood. Like our, our cousins that lived in Indiana, we knew had it much better, right? Huge house and constant vacations and all the best, newest toys, blah, 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 blah. But we never felt like we didn't have anything because they had more. We just had what we had. Was there a time when... Two years later, five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, where you look back and had more visibility into, oh, that, you know, it was different, but my parents helped create that great balance of us having to work for it, but, you know, shielding us from some of the stuff they were sacrificing to make sure that that happened. Was there a point, a specific point? There was. When I I moved from Purdue to Indiana and took my first professional job at Gilcrest and Soames, the, I think it was month three. I was working as a temp. It was hourly. It wasn't great pay. It wasn't bad, terrible pay. It was fine. But I was work, I was living in a really terrible apartment complex because it's what I could afford. And I was sitting there one night and I'm like, man, this is what they went through. And I'm doing it paying for one person. They did it paying for four. And it just kind of wallops you all at once of, holy smokes, <laughs> I think this is not easy. How hard did that have to be? How many times did they go to bed hungry or crying or whatever? And we never knew because it's hard. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I didn't, uh, you know, I thought it was important to to dig into that because that often in these conversations, the foundation of the person and the experience that they've had both either in the moment or that they've kind of processed afterwards has been kind of central to their DNA as a individual and as a, a leader, you know, throughout their career. So it's super interesting to, to, dig in on these things. And I appreciate you sharing your experiences on that front. Yeah. It's, uh, it's neat to be able to cast a spotlight. I probably need to do a better job as a human being of sharing this kind of things with my parents to let them know how strongly the example they said mattered, if that makes sense. I think the one last other lasting impression from that was I didn't want to be in the same economic situation that if it was within my power to make sure that that struggle never was real, then I was going to do that. And the second one was I wasn't, I didn't want to have children early that watching some of that journey that they suffered through. If I could achieve my economic goals, then I would establish a family later in life where I had already I kind of identified who I was as a person and had the economic security to not have to have those, those specific challenges uh, in addition to raising a family. And then that's exactly what I did. I got married in my thirties and we had, uh, we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be the grandpa in the stands, right? Where my daughters, they're going to like, Oh, your grandpa came. And they're like, no, that's just my dad. But, uh, but it, you know, kind of mission (laughs) accomplished, so to speak. I just didn't understand the full consequences of what I was planning out. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a little bit of a grandpa, but You'll be able to be there in the stands, right? Which I think is That's right. is some of the goal and the the uh, the economic freedom you're looking for for yourself, but also being able to provide that for your kids and your family in addition to financial freedom. Well, okay, so you're kind of early teenager. 
you know, you're working a paper route, you're working hard, but that's kind of part of life. Before we started recording, you were talking about this boarding school that you attended. And so had you joined that boarding school yet or were you in the process of joining it? When did that start or what, what was the next step? All still in public school at that point. During the paper route is when we discovered something called the Chick Evans Caddy Scholarship that your last guest, Dan O'Reilly, mentioned. So I stopped doing the paper route and I started caddying every summer. And the, um, again, the, the same, same support was there. My parents drove us to the golf course at 6 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday and Tuesday and Thursday and every other day that we were caddying. That was one of the, the beautiful life examples of start with the end in mind, that the, it didn't matter that you're making 11 bucks every time you're out there. That's the wage in Indiana back then. It mattered that you were working towards the scholarship because college was, I don't want to say it was out of reach, but it was uh, even going to a state school like Purdue that has done a fantastic job of freezing tuition for a, more than a decade would have been loans and everything else. So uh, yeah, I got involved in the Fort Wayne Country Club, a wonderful place. The Kratzert family have been incredible to me. Uh, and we got um, uh, both me and my sister caddied there. And both of us were lucky enough to receive a Chick Evans Caddy Scholarship from the Western Golf Association through the process. Yeah, Dan shared a ton about the Chick Evans program. He was actually the one who ultimately connected us and, and helped us get to know each other. It sounds like just an amazing program and what a job that they're doing in finding great people. And then to your point about your parents, you know, supporting those people as well in their goals and kind of helping build them up. Are there uh, specific experiences from caddying that were formative for you or was it kind of the, the Danny Noonan you're getting out there having some interesting experiences, but it's more about the, you know, this, the scholarship and kind of focus on that. Tell me a little bit more about that experience for you. Yeah, those Illinois kids had it differently than we did, I think. Uh, so for us, it was, um, maybe I was more serious. I don't know. I think the first thing you learn is customer service. It's you and the golfer walking the golf course and learning tact of when to shut your mouth and just shut up and carry the bag and walk and do your job versus when does the player want to have a conversation. That's easy to understand today, but at 13, that was not easy to understand. And what's appropriate to talk about? What isn't? And how do you pick up on social cues of like, I've, all right, kid, I've had enough. I'm trying to play a game of golf here. <laughs> You're supposed to be carrying the bag. So those were interesting. Uh, I think another was it's a good There's, EQ test or an EQ totally. kind of muscle builder for sure. Every uh, twice a day, five days a week. Yep. Uh, and and how to how to assess how to size up someone's personality fast. Is this person a talker and their their joy is going to come from getting to know me, or is this person a golfer and they're here to play and I'm just uh, providing a service? So you needed to be able to size that up really quickly. Uh, you need to be able to size up what do they want to talk about. If there were a real estate agent and they don't love what they do, but they do love football or college football or high school football, doesn't matter. How do you size that up quickly using uh, their clothing or their head covers or the bag or their shoes or their ball marker or some trinket that they've got on their person that can forge a connection? Because this is a, this is a job about tips. So the better you forge that connection, the more you can be in step with what they're looking for, theoretically, the better they pay you. And then the more often, the better paying golfers request you, so the more money you make. This is fascinating. 
these are like very sophisticated observations for a 12 to 18 year old or whatever range you're in at that point. Were you having these observations at that point? Or do you think that it was kind of innate and you were doing it naturally is kind of question one. And then my second question, which I think you've already answered a little bit was, was there an incentive system that rewarded that over time as well in terms of, you know, requesting caddies and better tips, things like that. I'd love your, your thoughts on that or on both the, of those. Yeah, the explanation of what was going on is far more nuanced today than it was when at 14, right? Far more <laughs> nuanced. But the, the gist was, I want more money. My path to more money is if I do A, B, and C behaviors, I get D result. If I do one, two, and three, I get A, Z result, and that's far better. So I'm going to keep doing those things. And then it's just constant iteration and constant refinement and constant, what, it, what could I have done differently and better in this situation? A round of golf takes four and a half hours when you're walking, right? On a, a decently sized course. So there's a boatload of time. I almost said a different phrase of time, a boatload of time. To, <laughs> That's to right. There, there's explicit language on allowed. Yeah, Excellent. So there's a shitload of time walking around <laughs> to be able to reflect on, I wish I didn't say that, or that went over poorly. Or I did a sloppy job of this. And so there's, there's not even a, you don't have to wait till the round's over. You can course correct in the moment. Again, my, my 14 year old brain was like, yep, do this right. And you get more money, do this right. And you get more money. And if this person, if the player was enjoyable, like if I just genuinely enjoyed being around them, and there were definitely people like that, you'd want to do a good job purely because you enjoyed being around them. Maybe they had interesting stories or they had something that was, was unique to them. I'll also mention it's, it was nice to learn at a young age, you could do a variety of things and still be wealthy. You know, where the way I grew up, at least the, the thought was you needed to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I was generally preparing myself to go down one of those two paths to achieve my goals. Right. And then you meet a guy who I, I met a guy, uh, it sticks with me still 40 to 30 years later. He built boats. His company made boats. He hated golf. <laughs> I don't know why he was there. He was a terrible golfer, but he's a wonderful man. And there was a jeweler, who, a gentleman who owned three or four jewelry stores around town. There were dentists, there were architects, there were all kinds of careers that, I know dentists are doctors, but you know, they're generally perceived differently. So there, there was all kinds of careers on display and each one of those folks had enough money to pay the country club fees and to pay a caddy to carry their bag around. So I, I did everything at that club that I possibly could. I caddied in the summertime. I worked in the banquet hall in the wintertime. I worked in the bag drop. What a range of experiences to have, both in terms of EQ reps. Like you've got these pretty sophisticated captive audiences for four and a half hours that you can kind of like iterate with and practice your EQ on. If you're, you know, you probably weren't using that language then, but, you know, intuitively you picked up on that and clearly, it, you know, iterated those and built those muscles. And then also observing the observation that there's a range of paths. Growing up, I had similar experience. It was different paths, but there was a handful of paths that, you know, the whatever the community one was in were, you know, kind of indicated that that was the path to success. And it seems like a pretty phenomenal way of being exposed to, you know, there's all sorts of different paths to that end goal. And this kind of makes me want to, I mean, our kids are six, two and minus two months old. so. They're not yet ready to carry a golf bag, but as soon as they can, I feel like that's a great way to get them some experience and get them closer to cash flow positive. 100%. And if they don't, uh, if uh, they're 
not participating in the WGA scholarship program, who cares? Because you still get all the benefit of, I think I look at them as, as equal value. And I can say this as a, as an adult who graduated college with no debt, right? So uh, I definitely am applying hindsight here, but the, the lessons learned on the golf course and the, the wages uh, was probably just as valuable as the scholarship itself to college. For sure. Oh, yeah. I, I, think I wasn't even thinking about the scholarship. I mean, the scholarship is important, but I think also the just fundamental experiences that come from that role, especially if you're an astute kid and, you know, and willing to work hard. You're not necessarily yeah. putting the same words around it that we're putting around it now in hindsight, but there's a lot to be taken from that experience in addition to, you know, at least immediate economic outcome. Yeah. I'll, I'll also echo something Dan mentioned, which is the selection meeting. Your listeners should listen to the last podcast because his description is better. But as part of the application process, you have to stand in front of the people who fund the scholarship and answer questions about why you deserve it. I didn't luckily have the person who belts out, uh, you know, an opera song ahead of me. But unlike Dan, I had the ultimate home field advantage. So the selection meeting in Indiana uh, rotates between a variety of different country clubs. And it just so happened that the year I was up for selection, was at Fort Wayne Country Club. So I was, I had my selection meeting. (laughs) Uh, My selection meeting was in front of probably 80 people who I've caddied for. I cleaned their towels. I brought them dinner. I mean, uh, there was a a, a seven-year relationship there with half the faces in the room. So if you felt like I was stumbling on a a question or if there was something that uh, just didn't feel quite right, there were 80 friendly faces in the room That's awesome. that I'd worked in for seven years. Yep. Yeah, it goes to show, I mean, there's some luck in that, but also you worked hard to build those relationships and, you know, you never know how a relationship's going to pay off. You just got to kind of invest and build and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. You don't build the relationship for that reason, but the more friends you have, the more opportunity there is for something like that to happen. So that's amazing. Well, this is a, so my selection meeting and my recipient of the Evans scholarship actually ties into boarding school. So I'll, I'll switch into that real quick. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll mention, uh, I had a very good opportunity to go to the Indiana Academy for Science, Mathematics, and Humanities, which is co-located with Ball State and Muncie. Uh, so it's on campus. Uh, it's a boarding school for juniors and seniors in high school. When I attended, again, ago, the state fully covered tuition, room, and board, and food. Today, wow. there's a a fairly nominal fee, um, but substantial enough to where it can be out of reach for some students in Indiana, which is a shame. And I hope the uh, the state government fixes that because the funding the school has received has not risen alongside the cost of, of attending, which is, which is a shame. But the school was really designed for gifted and talented students. It's a residency program. So you really kind of get that experience of, of a college lifestyle at 16. Uh, which is a neat, neat experience. And it comes with uh, a workload that is meant to prevent you from doing terrible things. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're doing three or four hours of homework a day, but everybody is, so it doesn't feel weird. But it, it was not, my, every, every uh, two years, the school totally changes, right? Because the students are leaving and new students are coming in. So the character and the identity of the school is constantly uh, in flux, which is, I think, part of its charm. But the two years that I was there, was not super competitive. It was just a really cool place to be. And it definitely pushes you uh, academically. You have access to classes and to resources and to professors that no high school 
in Indiana can compete with. Just can't. Don't even try. Mm-mm. The, That's awesome. the staff is, is stellar. More formative experiences in that school than we probably have time to go over. But it, it had a, a tremendous... Do you have one or two staff. favorites? Uh, I received the best compliment of my life at that school from one of the professors. And so there's a Herman Melville book called uh, Billy Bud. And I, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with it. But it tells the story of a sailor who's shanghaied off of his ship and, and, and forced into the British Navy. But the story is a parable where Billy Budd represents the Christ figure and the captain of the British vessel represents the devil. And we read the book. And uh, at the end of the, end of the book, the professor says, uh, who was also one of the drama instructors, uh, said that the greatest regret in his life was that he, uh, for his, from his um, drama perspective, was that he had never directed Billy Budd. And he said, I never took on Billy Budd because I never found anybody who I thought would be a believable Billy Bud. And then I met you, Tom. And the whole class, <laughs> he said in front of everybody, and the whole class is like, holy cow, the professor thinks Tom is, is the Christ figure of this class. And that, uh, <laughs> that, is the, no pressure. that is the most like sincere, amazing compliment you can give. And then I probably made the single most awkward face of my life because how in the world do you respond to that? Yeah, you don't. Uh, so that was a neat joke that we kept up uh, and it stayed in touch after school as well that I bought him a copy at graduation. It was a neat, neat story for the two of us. Did you guys do the show? Did you do we it? We didn't do the show. No, we did. Uh, we did the tea house of the August moon. We did a midsummer night's dream and a variety of other shows, but uh, never tackled Billy Bud, even after the compliment. He actually, we drove down to Indianapolis from Muncie together because I participated in the Indiana Shakespeare competition and uh, he was the coach and I, I participated, which was a, a super fun, super fun experience. That's awesome. So that particular thing always stands out as something that I have a, a fond memory of. The, uh, another one that's, that's kind of just low-hanging fruit is I uh, was able to take a genetics class at the academy. And the neat thing about that was I learned that I was better at it than everybody else. There you go. And, when, and I, I say that not humbly, which is probably not one of my personality flaws, but uh, uh, when you're in a room full of really smart people and you're better at this thing than everybody else, it, it genuinely led me to select genetics as my major at Purdue because I'm like, well, this will be easy because I'm better at this than everybody else. I had no, I had no <laughs> foresight of like how in the world I would make money doing this or what I would. I just knew I was better at it than everybody else. And it, um, yeah, uh, but it wouldn't have not, would never have happened had I stayed That's in That's fascinating. Yeah, it's rare that in high school you get exposed to genetics, first of all, or, or like, you know, at genetics at any depth is one observation. The other is we have some personal crossover here because I studied biology and genetics in college as well. I was probably the opposite of you in that it wasn't necessarily easy for me, but I found it very interesting and I, and I felt like it was challenging and perceived as challenging. And so if I could do well in that, I could do well. You know, that was translatable into a lot of other things. So... But similar to you, um, I wasn't sure of, you know, pro- professional trajectory and if that aligned with where I wanted to get from there. But I'd love to hear, you know, enough about me. I'd love to hear about your experience at Purdue and, you know, studying genetics and, you know, the next chapter. Because I think you, similar to me, went on to do things that weren't somewhat related, but over time, less and less related to that. But it was a great experience for me. I'd love to hear about how it was for you. My quick tie-in to the Evans Scholarship in the Academy was the day I received the letter that I've been granted an Evans Scholarship and I would be going to Purdue tuition-free. 
one of my close friends who lived across the hall, like I ripped the door open. I'm like, Tim, dude, full tuition scholarship to Purdue. And he, he gives me a, a big high five and a hug. And he's like, congratulations, man. I just got a free ride to Stanford. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you couldn't even like give me 30 seconds on this one, you turd. So, uh, and, and we shared this earlier, but the one of the big events at the Academy at uh, before your graduation is uh, the awards and scholarship banquet. So you're invited there with your family and it's, it's a victory lap for the academy. Like we helped your student earn this scholarship, right? So we had students attending West Point, the Air Force Academy, blah, 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 Harvard, Stanford, all the names. And then it's my turn. And they introduced that I got a full ride to Purdue and everyone, the polite applause of the room uh, from all the parents. Oh, Purdue. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then they said, uh, uh, and Tom's the recipient of a Chick Evans Caddy Scholarship. Uh, among the requirements are caddying a certain number of times successfully, having the financial need, academic performance, and community service. And, and the room is just quiet. <laughs> and I've got to look at it, everybody. And I realize they're all pissed that their idiot kids didn't go to Caddy because they wouldn't have had to do stress about trying to get a scholarship to such and such, blah, blah, blah. Because if they'd worked hard and caddied, they could have been standing on the stage next to me going to Purdue or IU. So, uh, and now Notre Dame actually is also at Evans Scholarship School, but uh, in Indiana. But uh, yeah, it was a, that always is a fun story uh, of kind of a moment where the, the applause changes. Yeah, that's uh, all roads in my mind are leading to my kids need to caddy right now. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I go to Purdue and I major in genetics. I do that and I have a minor in U.S. military history, which is completely unrelated, but something, a subject I found interesting. About two years in, I realized that I don't know what I'm going to do with genetics professionally. Don't have any idea. So I go to the terrible guidance counselors and the one valuable conversation I got from the guidance counselors was, well, you know, you're only 12 credit hours away from a degree in microbiology too. I didn't know that. Yeah, sure. What's 12 credit hours? So I... I had that chance to stay and work at Purdue over the summertime, and, uh, and I took the extra credit hours over the summer, and I got a degree in microbiology. There you go. Some early, early operating leverage. I had this, uh, right, I had this idea that I was going to be a brewmaster. That was like the, that's what I was going to do. There was an Evan Scholar alum who was working for Budweiser, so, you know, trying to work the network and do those things. Uh, that never panned out. I never even got close to it. But uh, that was always kind of the, the thought with, well, with this micro degree, at least I can go brew beer. So I had the, gen, uh, the micro uh, degree and I got this career path of being a brewmaster. The Purdue house, uh, Purdue was excellent for me. I was uh, president of the Evan Scholars House, involved on campus, involved in IFC. I, I just had a blast. And then graduation time comes. I, I know we're kind of skipping through Purdue, but... I shouldn't, right? It was a great, a great experience overall. And uh, I met lifelong friends that I've, I've literally traveled the world with through Purdue and Evan Scholars. So it's, it, it really was a, a fantastic, the right place for me for where I was and what I needed. But we get to graduation and I have not, remember, I haven't lived at home since 16. As a matter of fact, I haven't slept more than like six feet away from another human for five years at this point, right? Because I, I was living in the <laughs> dorm at, at the academy. And then we had uh, cold air style bunk beds at the, at the house. And I have the prospect of having no job. I had some really cool 
interviews um, Booz Allen Hamilton and, and some other Eli Lilly and some other really cool places, but there just wasn't. I, I ran into that typical thing twenty-one year olds run into of boy, you you're sharp, but you have no experience, and we don't want to be the place that spends the money to train you. Super. Yeah. <laughs> right at the same time, there was a drug. I think it's called Viox that had come out for something or other, but it was giving people heart attacks. So the pharmacy industry, which for years before had been spending freely on all new people all the time, and there it was going to be good forever. 2005, it the the wheels came off of that gravy train, and I entered that space with pieces of paper that really suited me well to work in the pharmaceutical industry, which didn't want anyone new. <laughs> so yeah, I, the uh, ups and downs of the journey. So f- pretty frustrated. And um, my parents said, you know what, you can, you're welcome to move back in. Rent is going to be this much a month. And here's your share of the expenses. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, right, right. I don't want to be there. You don't want me there. But, you know, th- this is the path we're kind of headed down. Now they're like, no, we're not joking. <laughs> there's no, there's no free lunch. All right. So uh, I think with redoubled effort, uh, I found a, uh, a temp agency in Indianapolis that was hiring for a shampoo factory that bottled hotel amenities. And it was a quality control microbiologist job. So, all right. Well, they interviewed me and they hired me. So I started, I think a week after, uh, a week after I interviewed and there was a 36 hour gap, I think between graduation and my first day of work. That's pretty good. You solved you solved that problem pretty quickly. I sure did, and so I lived on uh, some friends' couches for a few weeks, saving up money to be able to get my first apartment. And then I got my first apartment and began life as a professional with no one living six feet from you. It was that I'll tell you, it was kind of lonely um, because <laughs> in a in a in a house where there's fifty adults, that at any one point you don't feel like you feel like fucking off and doing something dumb. Someone will say yes, and if you can't <laughs> find internal anybody, discipline, yeah, and if you can't find anybody that's willing to do that, you could find someone on campus that would do it, or you could just go to the bar by yourself, and then someone you know <laughs> would walk in, and then mayhem ensues. So you know, kind of going from that to I live in a place I've never lived before. I only know like ten people in town, and there's not fifty people within my structure that are ready to do something stupid at a moment's notice was uh, was a transition for sure. In that transition to kind of not flying on your own, because you'd always, you know, or not always, but, you know, had been at boarding school for a long time. But were there learnings in that for you from, you know, making that transition from always being kind of in this community with a bunch of com, you know, a lot of camaraderie to, hey, I'm kind of charting a little bit of my own course here and there aren't as many uh, kind of co-pilots along with me. Fortunately, most of my Evan Scholar pals and my college pals all graduated at the same time. And even though we dispersed, we were probably traveling to some city twice a month. All of us were unencumbered, no families, no kids, no nothings. And so we would just pick a random city and we would all descend on it and do stupid things and then go back to our real lives on Monday. Barbarians just descending on some unsuspecting town. That's right. <laughs> Milwaukee, prepare to be pillaged. Uh, so it was, uh, and that really kind of, I think we kept up that for probably a year or two of, of just traveling around and, and getting to see a lot of interesting places. And if you remember, I think it was um, T-Mobile's old slogan used to be more bars and more places. 
And that was one of the slogans we took for our friend group was that we'd been to more bars and more places than anybody else. We took the Coors Brewery Tour and they said how much beer fits on a rail car. And now this is what happens when you have, I think, fun people who are also intelligently inclined. We went to the bar across the street and sat down and tried to figure out how much of a rail car we drank together. <laughs> and it was, was a, it was a, like a sincere effort, like with pen and napkin. Like it wasn't, this wasn't just like, oh, I think we drank five rail cars, 10 rail cars. Ah. It was like, all right, how much do you think we actually, how much beer goes into a rail car? Okay, we can figure this out. Sounds like a consulting, that's like a consulting interview question. Yeah, how many <laughs> ping pong balls in an airplane? It's just a more fun consulting question. Yeah, how many, how many beers in a rail car? Many as you need there to be. There you go. Okay, sorry. So I, I, I took you, I, I took the rail car off the tracks a little bit. So you're, you got this job, you're starting out and, you know, how did, how long were you there? What, you know, you had, you had a few spots where you've kind of built your career over time in between uh, Surplus City and there and, and would love to hear about kind of each of those stops along, along the journey. I would be doing a huge disservice if I didn't mention that at each stop, I had the extreme benefit of having at least one person who was committed to helping me advance myself or my career. I'm not the person I am today if those folks don't get involved. So the very first person is a, a, a woman named Christina Mavity. She was the supervisor of the role that I had and had just infinite patience for my shenanigans and my, my rough edges. Trying to, <laughs> <laughs> trying to work with a, a young professional, and that was a, a stretch at the time, who felt like he had all the answers, even though he had none of the experience. I've met people like me later in my career, which just makes me appreciate her all the more uh, <laughs> because it is obnoxious. <laughs> it is just completely obnoxious. But she had a, a ton of patience and I was formative moment was the first week I had told her item number 767 that we should change about the process. So it would be better. And it was a relentless assault for my first five days of how stupid everybody else was and how smart I am. And she looked at me and she goes, you know, I find it's a lot easier to understand why something's done before you suggest on how to improve it. <laughs> and I mean, it was it was the, the most, what did Muhammad Ali say? Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. I mean, that, that slapped. And I looked at it, I was like, okay. And I thought about it. And on Monday, I was like, by Monday, the weekend, I was like, she's right. I probably need to curb my enthusiasm a little bit here. Uh, <laughs> and maybe I could shut my mouth and learn a little bit. That's your EQ kicking in. That's the caddy EQ. That's a quick cycle time over the weekend. I think I definitely went through like, a, how dare she talk to me that way? I am brilliant. Everyone in the last six years has told me so and reinforced my worldview. How in the world could she be so wrong? Uh, and she wasn't wrong. She was super right. <laughs> and so, but you're, uh, or you oriented, reoriented pretty quickly. Yeah. I went from anger to acceptance pretty, I went down the path pretty fast uh, because again, I think the, the specter of having to move into my parents' house and pay them rent was looming over my head. So uh, being willing to tolerate someone's giving you adv like well-meaning advice, I think was, was pretty okay. So uh, I was in that role for about a year. Uh, I learned a lot about manufacturing and the people, the hotel business was, is fascinating. It just is. And we made some changes to the product to improve safety and reduce cost, which always is always a win when you can do both. And that parlayed into a R&D opportunity at that company, which I, I spent, I think, a year and a half or two years in working on product development and identifying fragrance trends and things like that, which was all really exciting and much closer to the 
I think the work I ended up not only enjoying, but doing longer term. I knew really quickly getting into the professional world that I did not want to be a bench scientist. You know, the micro work was fine, but it's, it was repetitive and by definition, right? It needs to be, you need to be able to test these products, test these samples, confirm their purity, do these chemical analysis, blah, 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 blah. But it, when you look at it as a process, it was just the same thing every day. Yeah. And for me, um, I don't know if this maps to your experience, but uh, for me, that's like the feedback loops were too long. The cycle times were too long. If I were to have pursued a career in genetics or, you know, kind of a biological lab, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I needed a little bit more, I think, excitement and variety, you know, maybe more people. So yeah, the R&D role was perfect. I really enjoyed it. Built a really cool team. And then the second person at that facility uh, was a gentleman named Kurt Sendik. He was the vice president of the operation and really brought that kind of like what a polished executive acts and does and says and, and behaves. And his philosophy, he was able to be jovial, but also serious. Like you knew he meant business, but he could joke around with you. And that was one of the first the first executives I had met that really could live in both worlds. And so one of the neat the neat things that we had in our relationship was I had a chessboard in my office. I am, I am, if the world has 999,000 ranked players, I am 998,999th. Uh, so it is, <laughs> it is definitely a thing I enjoy. But you're ranked. But I, but I'm terrible at. Oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm making it up. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at chess, <laughs> but, uh, but I love the game and I love the thought process of it. So unfortunately for me, Kurt was a very talented chess player. And so once a week, he would come to my office and we'd just play chess and we'd talk about the business. We'd talk about life. We'd talk about anything while he stomped me mercilessly on the chessboard. If I lost <laughs> too quickly, we could play two games and I could lose. Uh, it's but, good for uh, humility. It's, it's it, good to it, get yourself in a, in a mind, mind space of humility. Yeah. And then maybe that was the point. But it was always, it was very enjoyable. And I, I learned a lot of different tactics from him that I wouldn't have adapted I think as nearly as quickly without, without the tutelage of, of really how to, you get more bees with honey than vinegar. And I think my approach was 98% vinegar. <laughs> the joke around the factory at that particular location was I should have a sign on my office saying, I'll be nicer when you'll be smarter. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, uh, passing through Gilcrest, um, I, I met a gentleman named Charles Haywood and, uh, his business partner at the time, John Cleary, had started a contract manufacturing company named Mansfield King. And it was, uh, I think it had been in business for a year or two. And they had um, been very excited to add R&D capabilities to the facility. So I joined, uh, I took a, I, at the time, what looked like a kind of a silly risk. I left a very stable, you know, 50, $75 million business where I had the lab to myself. And I joined this fledgling startup that... Um, uh, and a, a space I didn't know anything about. So uh, my first day at Mansfield King, I got served this massive dose of humble pie because I, I strutted out of Gilcrest and Soames thinking like I was the master of R&D. I had, I had mastered this, this activity. <laughs> the first day I'm all fired up and, and they're like, hey, I'm really glad you're here. We've got a request from one of our best customers to develop a hair relaxer. So Here's the parameters of the product and, uh, and let me know when you can bring samples, but we really want to get something out in the next two days. Like, I'm your man. That's why you brought me here. No problem. Let's go. 
And then the door shuts and I have a heart attack because I don't know what the hell he's talking about. What is a hair relaxer? I have no <laughs> idea. So you learn really fast that you're not the master of R&D. I was the master of little bottle R&D. I could make hotel products. I had no mastery whatsoever of consumer product R&D. So the, the next couple of years were really figuring out the consumer space, how to care for different hair types. And as I, as the business got kind of more comfortable that I wasn't just the, the scientist that needed to be in a dark corner and left alone, there got to be more and more interfacing with customers. Um, and, and anyone in your audience that's ever worked at a startup knows that there's not, there's no role that is one job. Yeah. So I was doing R and D quality, helping with compounding, not actually like climbing the ladders and carrying the bags, but helping. And I was also doing scheduling because that makes sense. I mean, those, those four things all go together. <laughs> and, and then as we started to professionalize the business more and more, you know, the oddball things that I was participating in started to get peeled away, but they were replaced with an enhanced interface with the customer, which was fantastic. And really what I needed to have a career trajectory with, with Mansfield that I did. I want to quickly go back to something you said when you were thinking about the transition from Gilchrist to Mansfield. Externally, it looked like a crazy risk. Why did it feel like maybe not a risk or something that was worth the risk to you? I felt like at Gilchrist and Soames, I had I had delivered enough value to keep my job, but I had ruffled so many feathers by being young and obnoxious that I wasn't going to do anything else. So for me, the the leap, the risk was about a pay increase naturally, but it was also about a job title that I went from basically, I think it was like R&D chemist two to vice president of R&D because we were a company of like 15 people. I could have been the vice president of Fantasyland. It didn't matter. The titles were candy back then. And so, um, <laughs> so I, I think it was about, I think the most important thing to me was the prestige that I was going to be an executive at 24, 25. And that was very important to me because I felt like I would earned it. And then I learned really rapidly that I hadn't. But again, uh, my superpower is ignorance. So uh, I, I didn't know that I hadn't. And that, um, that was a, a, an awakening over a couple of years of, boy, just because your business card said something, something doesn't mean that you're that thing. You can't walk around throwing temper tantrums when you don't get your way because otherwise my, my business card should have said vice president of Babyland. And so there, <laughs> there was these small companies really give a lot of leeway to make mistakes that you can fail. You can fail up. Does that, that make sense? Uh, and that, yep. that was the environment I needed to be in for the majority of my career, really, uh, where I could take risk, I could make mistakes. And I was around a group of folks that would support that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And did I did kind of upward mobility and optionality in a younger kind of expanding company ever come into your mind or and is that kind of related or that not that was a benefit, but not necessarily the driver? Benefit, but not a driver. Yep. I'd love to pretend that I was that sophisticated, but nope, it was prestige and money and that I had those two things. I didn't care about anything else. <laughs> so you're at Mansfield for a number of years and then you moved to, is it, was it PLZ? Am I remembering that right? That's right. What, yeah. what was, what precipitated that move and, and what was that? Well, PL acquisition. Uh, so um, 2020, the founder and I at Charles Haywood, who is my mentor of choice. The, I don't know anyone who can do what he can do. 
I don't know very many people that I would say are galactically smarter than I am, but he actually absolutely qualifies. He kind of has that anti-hero, anti-leader approach of like, I'm not going to be a boss, but in doing so, I'm going to be the best boss you ever had. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, just, just an incredible person to be around. I, I, I have the very good luck to have helped his company grow with him and for him, but also a chance to be a personal friend. And that, that's incredible. He, he's, his decisions to, to give me space to help his business do what it needed to do absolutely changed my life. But 2020, we'd, we'd had long conversations many times over about when the right time to exit would be. And when we hit a certain revenue target, we had a certain EBITDA, then the time he would be finished. There would be nothing else professionally he wanted to accomplish. And he's still, uh, still today a young man. And so he had life goals and he has a family and all those other things, blah, 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 blah. So fast forward to 2020, we put our business book together. We go to market. We have a very boutique offering. I think we sent out 12 books to 12 businesses. We got 11 LOIs back. Wow. In to February. Sell the business. Yeah, in February of 2020. And then the news starts to <laughs> percolate about some mystery thing in China that no one has to worry about because it's over there, not over here. And then trying to manage a sale process through COVID was, uh, was very, Ooh. very challenging. Added uh, a great difficulty for sure. <laughs> yes, it did. And we, we finally uh, executed the sale to PLZ in August of 2020, 2020. The super fascinating part about that was I was having transition calls from the hospital because we gave birth to my daughter that same week of transaction. Wow. Loading up. Yeah. Just do it all at once. That's what I say. So the, uh, <laughs> the nurses at the hospital had to think I was like some pretending to be some Hollywood big shot, right? Because I was constantly on the phone having calls with every customer on the planet about how great it was going to be and da, 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 da. Like, who is this chump that isn't even holding his daughter? Uh, so, um, <laughs> but yeah, we did that. And then I, uh, I took over officially as CEO at that point and ran the business for PLZ for a year. And then uh, PLZ restructured some of the division. And I took a senior executive role inside of the division. And I did that for about another 12 months or so. I just didn't have the appetite for it. It was exciting. There was a lot to learn. And then I'll, I'll also give a, a shout out to two, two gentlemen at that organization that were very impactful, even though it wasn't for as long of a period of time. It was uh, Dr. Sean Goss and uh, Aaron Erder. Aaron is the CEO I wish I was. I mean, tell me more about he, that. Why, Aaron why is that? Is, wow. He has such a gravitas when he walks into a room. At, at the same time, he can convey through just being there that he is absolutely in control of the situation and you're safe with Aaron. It's incredible. That feels like a superpower. That's, I think it's like five. <laughs> uh, I think it's even so wholesome that, like, when he smiles, there's like a little gleam and it makes the ting sound, you know? <laughs> He's an incredible leader, and uh, I, I really do cherish the moments that we got to spend getting to know each other and, and about life and business. Uh, I absolutely lifted a few things from his playbook when I went and left BLZ to Surplus City because they were they're that good. Uh, Dr. Sean Goss is a, a fantastic analytical leader, but doesn't get number paralysis. You know, is able to translate those into action. And I, I've always enjoyed being around people who can use data to create information to drive decisions with a bias towards action. What great mentors and folks to have around you and to learn from and kind of to be able to kind of pick and choose from all those different toolkits that you experienced in your career to, to take them to 
surplus city where you ultimately are. So I'd love to chat a little bit about that, about how how you connected into surplus city and then ultimately, you know, what the business does and, and what you're focused on with the business right now. Uh, the Foxhole Group, a private equity firm, uh, acquired Surplus City in uh, July of 2022. One of the board members of Foxhole is a, a close personal friend, and we've always said we'd like to do something together someday. And it's always like someday, someday we're going to do something together. And he calls me May of 2022. And he's like, hey, we're buying this business in Indiana. It's just 45 minutes from where you live, an HVAC distribution business. And we'd really like to have you in the, as a candidate uh, for the CEO role. And I'm like, yeah, that's cute, but no thanks. Like, <laughs> I don't know the first thing about HVAC. I'm a manufacturing guy, not a distribution guy. So like, oh, for two, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> but the more I got to know about the role, the, the more kind of fascinated I became about the business. The point of this business is it purchases overstock HVAC equipment and parts through, from the OEMs and then distributes them in an omni-channel way with e-commerce kind of leading the way, but an omni-channel way. And the whole point of it is to deliver extreme value to the buyer of the, the part. And I thought about this. This is where I've, I've obviously uh, much more mature in my career and who I am and, and had a, a very successful exit. So I'm able to take some chances where I wouldn't have been earlier, or I guess I did earlier too. I, maybe I always take the risk anyway. But what stood out was this was a really interesting intellectual opportunity because the flexibility necessary to pivot from manufacturing to distribution from an industry that I, I, I have won awards in and I know a great deal about on the personal care side to go to an industry where I don't know the first thing about it was challenging and it still is. But the, the, the core message of who the business is, who they help, who they serve, that was a thing that I never had in my career. It had always been B2B. It always had been, um, you know, traditional business. And this is gritty B2C. It is gritty, helping gritty entrepreneurs grind it out. And that is awesome. It's great. That's awesome. It, it is really satisfying. One of Especially the, in a way that you're delivering great value and prices to them, right? You guys have right. a, a mechanism to be able to really help them out. The business is 47 years old and it uh, did not have an injection of a lot of new ideas in it for a long period of time. So really status quo was the way the business flew. So my, my hesitation of the role was like, look, I've done this before. I've been on the sell side. I've been on the buy side. And there aren't a lot of businesses that are like super thrilled to meet the new CEO who's going to tear everything down that they, they've worked so hard to build or at least change it all, right? But as I've gotten into the role, I, I couldn't have been more wrong. The team of folks that we have at Surplus are, are incredible people. But they're also really committed to finding the best way to do what we do. I think this is like that one out of 100 unicorn business that just is really interested in doing its job the best way that it can. And so I've brought a, a group of kind of core principles. And one of those is I want to fail fast. I want to try new ideas. I want to know what works and what doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, we're going to either go back to what we had or we're going to try something else. There's no kind of obsession of ownership here. There's no silos and no verticals. There's just a, a group of folks that are really committed to, to delivering the value to the one truck installer who truly needs the service. For folks who maybe aren't as familiar with HVAC, uh, it's typically like a four-tier distribution model from OEM to dealer to supply house to contractor, or sometimes there's no dealer involved. So 
your contractor and, and the person we're really targeting and looking for is the local handyman or the person who's HVA certified. That phone number you get when you ask your neighbor or your family member, who do you trust with HVAC? You need to call my guy, Joe. Well, who does Joe work for? Well, Joe works for himself, but Joe will take care of you. He'll be there. He'll charge you the, the, a price so low that you won't even believe it's possible. That's who we want because that's who we can help. Because when Joe goes to the supply house to buy the equipment to solve you know, Jory's problem, he's not getting a discount or she's not getting a discount at all. They don't care about their business. They can't. It, it's a, a sporadic buy. It, it's hard to predict. So they, there's not a huge like incentive program there. And so the contractor's only alternative and the smaller entrepreneur is to take a cut on the margin to be able to compete with the large installers in their region, right? Because they're getting the incentives and they're getting the, the rest of it for much more affordable equipment direct from the source where our contractor is, is paying a premium three margins down the line. So yep, and everyone uh, needs to get their... Get their margin. Everybody's on taking that. their bite. Yeah. So yeah. we we like to see ourselves as kind of the the level the we level the playing field. Our entrepreneur contractor can now compete without slicing their own margin because they're getting help on the equipment side. That's awesome. Probably a fulfilling business as well, helping helping those guys build up their operation. Very much so. We kind of have a, a little joke that we're crafting about how we we really sincerely hope there's a graduation that our most serious entrepreneurs are customers of ours for five to 10 years. And then they've grown themselves to be a mega installer. And now they're getting all the benefits and the rest of it directly from the OEMs and they don't, they don't need us anymore. And so we really do sincerely like want that graduation lift where your business has been successful, you're entrepreneur minded, you're grinding it out, you're growing, growing, growing. And at some point, they're, the OEMs are going to take notice and you won't need me anymore, which hopefully you still need me. But I, I would understand if you don't. You can have the, uh, is it the Indiana Academy graduation ceremony? You know, the scholarship graduation ceremony. You gotta, <laughs> every, you year we can, every year we can bring in our <laughs> contractors and tell them that they're so important and big now they don't need us. <laughs> so <laughs> that might uh, not be best for business, but, you know, no. I, get, I get what you're saying that, you know, you, you're winning if your customers are winning. And, you know, if they're winning enough, ultimately they get big enough, which is great. Yeah. If they're not super growth focused, there's nothing wrong with that. There's HVAC technicians are in huge demand and people who are licensed to do the installations are in huge demand. There's a six figure career in it for anybody who wants to just work because it is work. I mean, sweating it out in someone's attic when it's 120 degrees outside is not for the faint of heart. So you got to want it. Uh, But there's a very comfortable, very good life in it if you're willing to work at it. And that's, again, that's the person we get to care about. Yeah, I love that. Well, we'll end on that. That's a great and powerful one to end. Before we end, one, thank you for sharing and taking the time. Awesome to hear and learn more about your background. And then two, before I end with everyone, I ask kind of a two-part question. It's kind of goofy, but I've modeled it after the take a penny, leave a penny dish in like a gas station, you know, convenience store. So I'll first ask you to leave a penny. What's something specific? you know, either a business trick or a book or a habit, something like that, that's been super helpful to you along, you know, your journey that might be helpful to others uh, in the community that are either in the process of or um, aspiring to, you know, build and lead a business. And then the second part of that question is the take a penny. So is there something that our community can do for you 
you know, where if you made, waved a magic wand, that that'd be helpful to you and what you're doing either in your business life or personal life or otherwise? Leave a penny. Uh, I, I may be a bit unique on this, but I think one of the greatest life and business books is Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. So, and it could very well be because I have two children under the age of three. I'm very familiar with this work. But uh, if you haven't read it in a while, I really suggest that you do. The, the, the messages of the book read as an adult are about navigating the ups and downs and how to do that. And when things go wrong and the book promises you that it will, you're in control of how you respond. And I, I felt from a, as a business leader and as a human that, that that's the that's base truth, right? That we can't control the things around us. Yeah, especially when you're pushing yourself, when you're leading people, when you're trying to build something of, of meaning or significance, like there's going to be ups and downs and it's a disservice to say otherwise. But it's a very powerful learning that you're in control of how you respond. So that's awesome. That's a great takeaway, both as a message and also as a, you know, the book as a delivery message for, you know, that concept. Awesome. Thank you. What, what one thing can, uh, you know, if sadly I don't have a magic wand, but if, you know, if, you know, someone in our audience has a magic wand that, you know, we could wave it, what, what can we be helpful with you on? Well, if uh, someone out there has a function or a DeLorean with a functioning flux capacitor, I could uh, absolutely go for one of those. I, I'd say that out there, uh, I think we're all struggling with recruiting in our own ways. I'm looking for technical people that have an HVAC background and are interested in coming out of the field for whatever reason. Either they just don't enjoy the attic work or they're getting maybe a bit older and they have a physical limitation, but whatever that might be, any resources that folks could guide us towards uh, would be would be fantastically helpful. Okay. Is there a you know website or a posting or anything that I can guide them to? Or can I have people, I'll have people reach out to me and I can put them in touch with you, whatever's yeah. easiest. Uh, we also have our info at surpluscityliquidators.com, an email address that uh, is monitored by our HR group. So if, uh, if anyone's listening that, that would like to try to apply directly, uh, you can reach out to us through our website. We have a phone numbers on the website. Our business is still really, uh, call us, talk to us, you know, let, tell us about your problems. We will try to solve them. So those, uh, those are all great ways to get in touch. Awesome. Well, Tom, this is an amazing conversation. What a great way to uh, kick off a day and, and, uh, appreciate you sharing, uh, the ups and downs and just the learnings along the journey. So. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. And I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it and appreciate it. Well, thanks for being curious and thanks for what you're doing out there. It's nice to have a resource when I've got either a long drive or I need some inspiration from something that someone else has been through. It's nice to nice to kick on Built to Outlast and listen to what other people have, how they've gotten to be who they are. Awesome. Well, glad, glad to have you a part of it. Thank you. Thanks everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttoutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 